Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. My background, you know, professionally is that I'm a process engineer. Uh, I spent my career in oil and gas, um, you know, working on refineries from a technical standpoint. And uh, I did also do a, a stint in management consulting. Um, but I saw an opportunity in cannabis. It's coming on eight years ago now, uh, where where somebody sent me a pitch deck about one of the earlier LPs, and, and in that pitch deck, I learned that the legislation was opening up for for you know ad adult use and med medical use cannabis. I had no idea at the time, um, you know. And a, and a buddy and I at work decided to take a couple weeks off, went down south, went to Oregon, Washington, and, and realized, holy cow, like the cannabis industry is so much more than just buying bud from your from your local dealer like they already had the vapes the drinks the edibles um and, you know and through that we we kind of realized that you know extractions at the heart of anything that isn't flower based and, and given our background in oil and gas uh the skill set was there right and so you know the initial pitch for motif was that uh we were just going to be a cannabis refinery right we we're going to take low quality cannabis we're going to extract it for folks flip it into bulk oils uh, toll process, you know, make bulk products. And we very quickly realized that we, we need to understand how to get products to shelves uh, and, and moved into a private label model. Uh, and for a while we were, you know, primarily driving our business by licensing U.S. brands, legacy Canadian brands and bringing them to market. Uh, and then in that process, we also realized that we like our own products and we, we happen to have our own ideas. And, you know, I, I, through starting this business, learned that I have a passion and a talent for kind of determining my own entry into the market. Fast forward a couple of years, we're predominantly an internal brand house now. Uh, we have the number one vape brand in Canada. We're the number two LP in infused pre-rolls, um, you know, the sixth largest LP, the number one private company. So um, it's been a wild ride to get here, but we're, we're super excited about what uh what we've accomplished in the last few years yeah i think what's interesting for me is you you saw this opportunity so early in your career because you're, you're a young guy so was that a year or two after graduating from university that you kind of saw this opportunity in, in cannabis and also you know being that young how did you feel comfortable taking that leap into this industry no it's a good question uh you know i i'd been working you know probably professionally like four years between internship and full time, but I definitely very young. Like when I saw the opportunity, I was, you know, 24. When I took the leap, I was 25. You know, now I'm 31. Um, it's, it's a great question, right? I think the, the reason I was very comfortable was in my explorations and in, in what this industry is, I met a lot of LPs and, you know, I had, I had a, a bunch of job offers that were dream jobs for me that were a lot more interesting than working in oil and gas. And so I knew that if I, you know, fell flat on my face and, and didn't didn't succeed, that you know I could go move to BC and start an extraction lab, and that's like infinitely more exciting than you know uh, working at an oil and gas company. And so like I had this entrepreneurial spirit and drive, and and my downside risk was pretty low from my view because back then there weren't a lot of engineers jumping ship to, to try to help move the industry along, and so uh, it was. Uh, but nonetheless, it was scary. It was a big deal. Um, I think part of being young is that you're naive. And I think being naive helped me get to where I am today. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So tell us about the first few years. How did you guys go about starting the company? And, and where did you get to the point where you felt comfortable in raising outside capital? Yeah, so when we when we started off, and you know, I won't, uh, there was a couple founder swaps there. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the remaining founder now. But um, to skip over that, you know, Early on, uh, we had a seed investor uh, that, that funded a small round, 400 grand. 
And what that allowed us to do was, um, you know, secure a facility and, and start paying some consultants to, to assist us in writing the application. And back then, you know, once you got the application to a certain point, Health Canada would say, look, on paper, this looks good. If you can build it, you'll get a license. Uh, and and that, that milestone was what we used to raise a, a larger round. And so, um, you know, this, this angel investor took a shot on us out of the blue on the 400 grand. And then we shopped around for, you know, the better part of a year, our, our business model, talking to anybody and everybody until we met, you know, through a random assortment of connections, met our current investor group that's been with us since and been financing us since. Yeah, and sort of that investor group, what was their background? They're, they're a high net worth group of, you know, entrepreneurs um, that, that invest together uh, in a number of opportunities. So, you know, they operate a little less formally than your typical VC, but they're, uh, you know, it's all over the map. We have, we have, folks that run massive restaurant businesses. We have people in financial services, manufacturing. And so, you know, I'm very fortunate in the investor group that we have that's been very supportive in, in funding us as a private business. And has that kind of helped you over the past six years, sort of, you know, through some, um, you know, turbulence maybe in the industry that, that we've all seen? Yeah, I think there's a couple of elements that have helped us, right? I think being a little bit later allowed us to kind of kick off the business without making any major mistakes. Uh, you know, we never had to, we never built inventory on speculation. We always built to service, you know, actual demand. And so we kept a very tight ship. Uh, I think having really savvy investors um, who, who are motivated by building a good business versus, you know, trying to make a quick buck on, on, you know, the boom of cannabis was extremely helpful for us in keeping us focused and focused on profitability. And then definitely, like as we went through the years, you know, we performed as a business, which made raising money relatively simple with this group because we were delivering the results. They had the capital and those two things kind of combined to like keep us moving uh, through through like when we got free cash flow positive, essentially. Yeah, and I just want to go back to, you know, the, the beginning of the company once again. Um, you guys started out and, and I think you're still very much so a B2B company, um, but what does that mean and, and help us understand since most of the audience is more so in the US, right? So rather than sort of producing your products and then selling it uh, wholesale, it seems like you guys sell it to the, the retailers as a, an LP yourself. And then you're really B2B. You're not touching the, the consumer so much. Yeah, no, fair enough. We have slightly different definitions up here. But, um, you know, when I mentioned B2B, I meant, you know, initially uh, we were manufacturing products for other LPs. Uh, we weren't commercializing our, our own brands, uh, but now we're predominantly a company that has our own brands, has our own pro uh, products. We do sell those to the provincial distributors and then the di provincial distributors move them into retail. Um, you know, and when I kind of mentioned B2B, I, I mean, we shifted from that bulk oil model to generating our own brands and moving them through to retail. Uh, we don't we don't own any retail of our own. Uh, we we just ship to the distributors. And what's your coverage in, in Canada? Um, help us understand you know, how many retailers there are and, and how many you're in and what's your penetration look like? Our penetration is very high. I mean, Boxhot is the number one vape brand in the country, number two infused payroll brand in the country. With that brand, you know, nationally, there's 3,500 retailers. And I would say kind of, uh, you know, at any given moment, over 90% of them carry at least one of our Boxhot products. Um, which is massive. And it's super exciting when I go into the middle of nowhere into a shop and just still see box hot. And then kind of when you look at our best SKUs, you know, our top vapes are, you know, 60, 70% distributed. 
Um, so we have great penetration there and, uh, and the retailers are, are big fans of our brands. From a purchasing standpoint, you know, there, there's a couple of larger retailers, you know, certainly high tide and, yeah. you know, we've seen retailers have sort of 75 to 150 locations, which are comparable to the US MSOs. Um, a lot of them though, seem like they're more, you know, one-off mom pop shops or they have several locations. So from a purchasing perspective, you know, is that success attributed towards distributors or, or where do you see that success or is it consumers pushing for it? It's a combination of, I mean, for something to go well, every, a lot of things have to go right, you know, and I think in Canada, we have the luxury of the government's managed distribution, right? So we only have to ship to like one center per province, and then the retailers order from there. So that's, that's a little bit easier for us to manage. But in terms of getting that uh, penetration, you do have to service both the major accounts like High Tide, uh, as well as the independents. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, our team has gotten very intelligent, you know, uh, we have, we have because our brands are so strong, right? We have a seat at the table with these big retailers and we can have, you know, strategic conversations about ensuring our assortments ending up there and we can support them and, and secure that distribution. So our brands brought us to the table with the big retailers, uh, but they also brought the consumers to the stores asking for box lot, which, which allows us to have a lot of organic uptake um, based on just the product quality and the affinity and the hype of the brand. Um, and then finally, I mean, we deploy this hybrid sales model where we have, you know, uh, a sales agency that employs, you know, 20 territory managers nationally, and we have 12 of our own. So we have 30 people visiting, you know, on average, hundred stores a month. So like, if you think about it, like, uh, you know, we're, we're visiting all the top tier stores a couple times a month. Uh, and we're having a 3000 interactions a month where we can tell our story really show the product and make sure that these retailers understand we exist. And that's extremely important because there is so many SKUs in Canada and the retailers need to be told uh, about your product for them to list it. Is that a lot of bartender training and education or is that also doing these customer appreciation where you, you have someone with the table at a dispensary for a couple hours a day? You know, what, what sort of activities are they doing? You know, in Canada, because we can't do the traditional type of marketing, right, uh, in terms of, you know, I wish I could just have a team managing SEO and, you know, digital ads, and we can't, right? So, you know, you, you do have to win over the bud tender, right? Like, they have to believe in your product. They have to want to talk about it, because one of your biggest opportunities is somebody comes in and says, hey, give me a big vape. It's like, well, box hot's bad vape, right? Hey, give me a, a strong CBD oil. Well, it's like fluorescence is your, is your solution to that. And so you really need them to, to buy in. Um, that's a priority. And then we supplement that and, you know, our territory managers, these 30 folks, they do pop-ups, right. And they sit there and they, and they talk to people about our brands as we enter. And then off offline, we run very targeted events to kind of really bring people in and, and, and get them into the brand ethos and, and have more of a, cons a consumer centric combo too. I'm your brands sort of offer similar stuff, right? So if I'm just thinking about Boxhot, obviously is your, your number one brand, but like Debunk also has vapes. So is it sort of covering different price points, targeting different consumers? Help us understand a bit more about the you know, portfolio beyond just Boxhot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's very targeted. We, we have five brands um, in market right now, one which is kind of being optimized. So, um, you know, the big ones to kind of really zero into right now are Box Hot, Debunk, and Rizzlers. And Rizzlers is our latest launch that just went live nationally. Um, so with Box Hot, really what we're trying to do is, you know, we were the first 1.2 gram vape, big chunky vapes, you know, big blunts, big flavors, not overly fixated on, you know, the technology like live resins, you know, those niche product lines. We're, we're trying to deliver really fun, loud, 
big and flavorful products with that brand and, and, and really always innovating on the format and the hardware that it's in. Um, and that's bringing in a very specific type of consumer. It's not a value brand by any means. In fact, it's, it's, it's not a low price distillate vape. It's, but it's got that affinity because it's got great hardware, great branding, great flavor. Um, you know, with debunk, what we're trying to do is be more technical. Right. And we're trying to bring people liquid diamonds, which is like 93% THC vapes. And we're going to be sharing those certificates of analysis to prove that, you know, we're making this THCA. We're bringing, you know, 50% THC infused blunts that are backed by a certificate of analysis. So it's a, it's a lot more of a high tech brand that's catering more to a, a consumer that really cares about like the strain and the technology and, and, and pushing the envelope. Um, and then Rizzlers is, is for, you know, Gen Z, right? And, and, and the younger crowd, a, a crowd that doesn't really have an understanding of what cannabis should be, right? I mean, cannabis has been legal for eight years. A lot of these people have been adults uh, only in a legal environment, right? And so that's all about, we have a closed loop vape system that we just launched. You know, that is our entry into a low basket price. Uh, and, and we're really looking to bring them function form. Uh, and, and, and with a focus on engineering the products, that the basket price is very acceptable for them. Um, and so we're really trying to bring different types of people in. Um, and, and it's not just vape. You know, our, our key categories are vape and infused pre-rolls. What are the other brands? So there's Boondocks. And then you mentioned there's a, a fifth brand as well, which I'm, I'm not seeing on the website. Yeah, Fluorescence is our initial brand. You wouldn't see that on the website. That was, uh, you know, really what that was, was a CBD-centric brand that, that I used as something to show our, our board that we can make a brand successful. And it was a non-competing brand with any of our clients. You know, that brand is getting reworked into just an oils brand. We're going to be delivering like minor cannabinoids at, at a, you know, very aggressive pricing. It's, it's a really small part of our portfolio, but it fits a specific kind of medical niche for us as we expand into some of these medical platforms. Uh, and Boondocks is our more recent brand uh, where we've set up that platform for this year. Motif is going to be going big into live resin. So, you know, we we cracked liquid diamonds and we're making highly potent uh, vapes. And this year we're, we're, you know, quadrupling our hydrocarbon capacity and we're going to be doing really nice uh, live resin products, really true to plant type production. And Boondocks is going to be a home for those products. So you can expect to see Boondocks growing a lot this coming year. I want to have two follow-up questions on that. So first one being, you know, from a product standpoint and a trends standpoint, are you paying attention to what's going on in the U.S. with sort of infused pre-rolls and then also live resin? Or do you kind of go at your own pace and you trust your local market in, in Canada? How do you just decide what products to kind of, you know, innovate on? No, it's a great question. I mean, it's all of the above, right? Like, uh, you know, Without fail, we definitely look to the U.S. I personally go to the, I try to go to the U.S. at least once a quarter with the specific intent of visiting stores and speaking to bartenders, going to trade shows, whatever it is, you know, whether it's me, my creative director, my head of innovation. I mean, we 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 hit this we hit the trade shows and we hit the stores and we have these conversations ourselves, both in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, so we amalgamate all of that data. And and one thing uh, that's that's super exciting is that you know we got. To, to where we got to based on just intuition and a lot of our key people being consumers themselves, including myself and where we're going to go is like the way that we leverage data now is completely different. Right. So, you know, when you get into infused pre-rolls, is, is it a five pack? Is it a 10 pack? Is it a three pack? So, so we take a combination of like amalgamating data on the street with our 30 TMs. We run surveys every month to talk to our bud tenders and consumers. We head to the States and, and look at what are some industry leading trends. Cause generally speaking, you guys have been ahead. Uh, and then we go look to the data to understand how to like optimize MSRP and format, um, you know, uh, and it's, 
that's how we make these decisions. On that data point, what, what data sources do you look to? Uh, right now we're using a number and, and we're really kind of building this data lake so that they can they can stack on top of each other, right? So, you know, HiFire is a really good data source for national sell-through. The provinces themselves give us uh, uh, sales data to varying degrees of, of uh, uh, you know, detail. Um, you know, we're, we're able to get data through some of the major retailers as well, uh, where we decide to opt in to get that data. Um, then we have uh, sources that kind of scrub the internet to make sure that we, you know, where is our inventory, which retailers are moving the most volume, which ones, like we have distribution data. And so when you kind of amalgamate all of that, you can, you can get very targeted on product format and like sales strategy uh, and where to focus your efforts. Yeah, HiFire was, was one I figured you'd, you'd be using. So glad you you mentioned that one. Uh, and then following up on, on the second question I had was around hardware. So, you know, just from what I looked, uh, it seems like the closed loop system is, is C-Cell. Seems like there's varying hardware options that you use. So can you tell a bit more about, you know, which of the hardware providers you use and, and why? Yeah, look, I mean, we partner with a lot of them. Um, you know, we've had a longstanding relationship with C-Cell. I mean, I think that's just circumstantial and they have, you know, they had a strong showing early days and we have good relationships there and we've developed a really nice partnership specifically with Jupiter. Uh, locally, we're, we're really close with Green Tank. Um, and so for us, really, you know, what it boils down to is, you know, finding something that's unique and interesting, right? With Boxhot, we, we took a very early C-Cell product. It was very big, chunky provided huge vapor and, and it really fit the brand in terms of like taking it to the next level. Like in Canada where we can't do what you can do in the States with packaging and, and advertising, like hardware is a moment that you need to exploit in terms of like building brand affinity. It's this thing that has its own set of regulations where you can have a lot of fun. Um, so what we do is we, we take, we, we have very robust testing. I mean, leaking, clogging, these are non-starters, right? And so we have to pick vendors that can provide us with that quality. Uh, and their test results that match our own test results. And then we, you know, push the envelope and try to take those designs to the next level. You need to have design and quality intersect, right? Like it's the, the, the days of launching products that clog that are like a black duckbill 510, you know, V1 Gen 1 hardware, they're over, right? The market's saturated and you really need to tell a different story. So does that mean you have some that are sort of proprietary to you and customized for you, or are there other brands using you know, some of their hardware? How does that work? Uh, so for Canada, you know, what we've done is we've jumped on like models that, that were off the shelf generally, uh, but they were very unique and early models. And we've grabbed exclusivity for our market, which has allowed us to kind of protect that. So like when you look at the, you know, Rizzler's pod system, we've got access to that for Canada. When you look at our box hot vape, we got access to that for Canada exclusively. And now we have a ton of, uh, well, not a ton, but we have some very targeted innovation with a few vendors that are going to be exclusive to us globally that are pushing that envelope even further. So now that we have our size and we have our, our pipeline, we're working with these vendors to, to take hardware tech to the next level and, and protect that for ourselves, uh, you know, on a global scale. Did you say you had exclusivity for the, you know, the Rizzlers, which are the dark? pods you have exclusivity they're, they're not they're not dart they're a different oh, okay. model yeah but we do have exclusivity for that model within canada as well as the uh, ra100 uh box lot yeah i'm glad you clarified that it, it looks very similar to me but uh obviously you know the specifics um but no it, it kind of makes sense if you're one of the leading you know market share for canada that c-cell should be giving you some exclusivity because you're helping to kind of build that model and it should be exclusive to box hot and some of your other brands 
it's a partnership, right? Like that, like building a closed-up system is not going to be easy. But what we've done is we've set it up so that you know, we we looked to where it was successful and where it failed, right? And you know, it's very successful in a few markets down south, as you know, with some of the brands you've seen. It's very successful in the nicotine space um, in terms of being able to set that up as a as a brand differentiator. Uh, where it wasn't successful, where, where it was way too expensive, too complicated, trying to deliver like an overly premium and complex product. What we're really leaning into is like, it's not a closed loop system for a sake of closed loop system. It's it's helping bring Rizzlers to life, which is a brand for a younger generation that that like wants something that stands out in the crowd. And so um, we've taken that baseline design and we've taken it up like 10 notches and made it our own. And it's it's a very high quality unit. Uh, that we've tested and optimized with C-Cell and our own team. So um, really excited to be bringing that to market. The the uh, the response has been awesome. National launch starting this week. Yeah, well, what's interesting to me is each of your brands really have very differentiated vape hardware. Um, what was the thinking there versus saying, hey, you can have sort of the same, you know, closed loop system or 510 across multiple of our brands. I know it's very, you know, targeted at, at very different audiences, but some might think for, you know, unit economics, you may just pick one form factor across all brands. So, you know, walk us through that thinking. Yeah, again, I mean, I think it's like, especially in Canada, I mean, hardware for vapes, hardware is just such a such a moment to, to really tie a brand together, right? Like I view vape hardware as an accessory. You've got your phone, you've got your AirPods, you've got your keys, and then you got your vape. And it's like on the desk with you. And it says something about who you are. And it, and it, and it's, more than just a delivery mechanism it's 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 brand affinity right and it's like you know um each of these brands is servicing a very different niche box is loud boisterous right big and and that's paired with a massive piece of hardware that stands out against the crowd debunk you know is a lot more laid back and it's a lot more sleek and it's a lot more um you know nonchalant and not in your face and it's you know looking at sleeker products and that's paired with a nicer unit that's a little more discreet and then Rizzlers is all about fun right and this thing clicks in with a magnet that's see-through plastic it's got like drippy drip drips falling off of the mouthpiece you know you can see into the internals of the like battery and you can see that digital element almost like an old school n64 and so like we really use hardware to like drive home who this product's for and uh you need differentiation there I guess to clarify my question, it was more, you know, so think about something that's very popular right now, like Stanley, right? It is that accessory that says something about you based on you know, the design yep. or the lab that you've chosen to buy. But essentially, like there's a few different tumblers. It's just different colors and you know, different maybe images on it. Um, whereas mm -hmm. you guys then would be like building the Stanley and the Yeti and, you know, other sort of tumbler options all at the same time. Right. So it's many more skews, I, I would say. Yeah, but I mean, it pays off, right? I mean, you know, if, if we use the box hard hardware in another brand, we'd be competing with ourselves, right? On the closed loop, I think that's the only area really to like zone in on. I mean, 510 is pretty ubiquitous. Uh, you know, those cartridges can be used with a lot of batteries, though we've paired ours with batteries. You know, the decision to keep our closed loop system for ourselves for the time being is really, again, like, it's a feature of that brand. Will we collaborate with brands that kind of like have a similar target demographic in the future and really build some hype? Maybe. But right now for us, you know, um, we want to leverage that as a, as a, as a key feature of, of being in the Rizzlers ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, we've got a lot of support from the provincial buyers. I mean, we've, we've launched, you know, a record amount of flavors on day one so that we can give our customers diversity in terms of selection, right? Because they are kind of going to that battery.
That makes sense. Well, let's talk about, you know, wh where you guys are at. So help us understand the, the size of the company you know, beyond just sort of your market share. So Amy, you can help us understand yeah. the number of employees, revenue, uh, profitability, anything like that, that you can share would be great. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to share uh, some of those numbers. We're very proud of them. Um, you know, we closed the year off last year, you know, hitting nearly $90 million on the year, on the calendar year. Um, you know, we were just shy of double digit EBITDA, uh, you know, no, no adjustments, you know, true EBITDA that, that, you know, is fueling us as a profitable business. Um, you know, we closed the, you know, we had north of 20% share of market in vapes, you know, close to 10% share of market in infused pre-rolls and, uh, uh, you know, sitting with about 300 employees, um, uh, you know, and 125,000 square feet of manufacturing. So, you know, we're, we're the number one private business in cannabis in Canada. And we're, you know, the sixth largest overall with really. Uh, and, and I think one thing to really underscore is we've done all that without participating in any really flower or non-infused pre-rolls, which still represent, you know, over half the market up in Canada. Um, so we're really zoned in on those high growth categories. Um and, and really trying to own those. So what do you guys pay attention to then? What's what's on the horizon? Is it continue to gain market share in Canada, go international, whether that's Europe or US or elsewhere? You know, what do you focus on for this year? Yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, when you when you look at where we are, uh, for one, we, we spent a lot of time on vapes and absolutely Motif's the leader in vapes and we're, we're going to be growing that. And, you know, Rizzler's is our kick at the can of uh, something very unique and exciting. And, you know, we believe we're the right people to push the industry forward past 510 and, and, and make some noise there. Uh, we're also going to those live resin vapes in Canada. So we're going to definitely be expanding um, how we address vapes. But the major category for us, you know, locally is going to be infused pre-rolls, right? We're just getting started there. We have a lot of very exciting innovation, whether it's Keef coated, diamond infused, um, that, that we're bringing to market. We 2023 was a great start for us, but in 2024, um, it's a real focus area that's going to drive a lot of growth. Um, and we're expanding our TAM into a few others strategically uh, through some innovation. So 2024 is largely going to be focused on like really cementing us in Canada and really solidifying us as a, as a 2.0 leader versus just a, a vape company. You know, a lot of people view us as a vape business, but we're a lot more than that now. And, and I think you guys will see that as we as we progress through the year. Um, internationally, look, it's 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 on the radar. Absolutely. It's on the radar. It's tricky. Right. Um, you know, you haven't seen a lot of success in U.S. big U.S. brands backed by big celebrities coming to Canada. Bit of a flop. Right. You haven't seen a lot of Canadian companies go down south very successfully. You know, we've seen the trials and tribulations of being a white label brand ourselves. Right. Where, you know, uh, we brought some of those to market. And I think for the U.S., I believe, you know, we're looking right. We have to be very strategic. We have to partner with somebody that understands that market that can help us unlock how to sell in that market. You know, we need to impose our manufacturing standards as well to be certain that we're manufacturing them to our standard. And so we're exploring, we're having conversations uh, and we're going to be very strategic because, look, it's it can end up being a big distraction and a big cost. Right. But we can't turn our back to it. And so really for us, it's just right partners, right state, right time. Um, that's critical. Right. Uh, in, internationally, we are looking uh, with some local companies here that have a GMP license and we're starting to explore uh, shipping bulk product, you know, Australia and Europe, uh, very much on the radar, very much in the, not in our forecast, but something that we could definitely start participating in with 2024. And then 2025, I believe is where we'll have like very concerted efforts to, to, to take that 
uh, a little more global. Since we're talking about U.S. and sort of going from a vape brand into more of a pre-roll brand or U.S. and you know more just a, a canvas brand in general, um, I want to ask you, who do you think are your competitors? Like, you know, given the brands that that we know here, like who do you kind of say, hey, you know, we're uh, uh, competing with these guys in vape. If we came to the U.S., we're competing with these guys with infused pre-rolls, which I think I have an idea. But who do you think are those competitors? Should you come to the U.S.? Oh, in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, look, like Stizzy, Stizzy's definitely up there on the closed loop. Um, you know, uh, they're the ones that have been able to commercialize it uh, in their own way, in a, in a way that's meaningful. Um, you know, I think we've we've learned a lot from their approach and then we've learned a lot from our own approach. And, and you know, we've we've taken that into account on the infused pre-roll side. You know, on the vape side, it's it's pretty fragmented. Right. Like, I think you guys have very strong live resin brands. Right. And so if we were to enter that, we'd have to be very thoughtful on the distillate side. I mean, it's, it's your typical suspects. Right. That are, you know, the, the, the big MSO brands that have wide multi-state distribution. And I think um, what we bring to the table there is that, you know, our brands are very thoughtful and they're, they're well thought out and they're not just slapping, you know, another squirt of distillate into like kind of a faceless cartridge. Like we, we really dial our formulations, our look, a feel on the infused pre-roll side, you know, you guys are, you guys are fantastic at it down there. You guys have had a couple of years. So Jeter's is really strong. Right. And we're, be, we'd be looking to kind of, we look to them to set our own internal standard of quality because, you know, they, they came and hit it pretty hard. And so, uh, look, it'd be the top players that everybody knows down there that, you know, we'd have to keep an eye out for. Um, but I think we could also bring our own flavor to the game. Like I think Rizzlers as a closed loop system is, is very different than what, you know, you guys have seen through the likes of Dosis, packs. Like we're, we're definitely not competing with them. We're in our own uh, category, I would say. Yeah, and I think from what, what you're telling me, it sounds like you wouldn't come in unless you could win market share and being a leading position in, in any states, right? So you wouldn't come with a, a certain category or a certain state unless you could find that right partner and actually gain market share. Absolutely. And I think it's like, you know, how, how do we partner with, let's say maybe it's a vendor of ours. Like, how do we find something that's more than just like a white label relationship where where both companies are incentivized to push this brand, Right. I mean, and, and that can come through the through our hardware vendor relationships, which which all have, you know, some access to, to manufacturing. You really have to stack a few benefits combined with a lot of trust and a lot of understanding of a market. Like you cannot just slap a label and hope for the best. I mean, you'll end up losing money very quickly that way. Yeah. And, and actually, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. Um, you said coming down here to kind of test out the market with trade shows quarterly basis, what markets do you go to and give some observations? Like, where do you look to for some of these trends, right? Is, is there a certain you know, city or a certain state, or is it a, a mixture that you kind of pay attention to? Yeah. It, I mean, for us, it's the ones that, you know, tend to host the, tend to host the, you know, big shows because then we're able to kind of uh, look at a few different things, but I mean, always California for sure. You know, uh, California, I just, I just love that as a brand state regardless of cannabis and so we definitely look to california uh, arizona nevada um you know we have a good pulse on colorado you know oregon and washington are a little bit interesting and, and you know a little bit more fragmented but they all have you have to take it with a grain of salt too right i mean everything is different you know california is very anti-distillate there's a lot of high quality small growers that have been able to make really solid live resin our supply chain's way different here so to, 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 to expect our live resin market share to be as high as California is a bad assumption without some, you know, critical thinking, for example, right? So you go down there, see what's working, see, understand why it's working. And do we have the infrastructure in Canada to support their why? And if so, then we start like exploring it. 
but now honestly man canada has come such a long way that in some ways we actually set the standard as well so i, I feel like we're caught up where regulations allow us to be and, and now it's you know can you get ideas yes can they get ideas from canada absolutely like we are no longer behind uh other than edibles but elsewhere we're we're, we're up, up to speed is that more so just the the packaging that, that we mentioned there's you know obviously very attractive packaging options you can do with gummies because once or i guess edibles in general but once you get in for the most part they're similar enough but the packaging is kind of what differentiates you know a wild down here from like a kanha or a kiva right yeah, packaging for sure. But I think the biggest thing right now is Canada's limited us to 10 milligram dose, right? And we all know that that's like non-sufficient. I would say that's the one regulation that I feel like is just, you know, holding a lot of uh, sales in the black market because as you know, your typical consumer is looking for 50 to 100 uh, and, and to buy 50 to 100 in Canada across five to 10 packs is extremely expensive and, and inconvenient, right? So it's really the regulatory environment that has suppressed edibles for us. Um, you know, I think if we overcome came that packaging would slow it down. But I mean, it's a level playing field on packaging. So you just have to win on product flavor and brand execution, right? And and since we're comparing US and Canada, how do you feel about where the Canadian LPs that are publicly traded versus some of the MSOs down here that are publicly traded? Um, yeah, and that's to kind of ask you further down the line from an exit opportunity standpoint. You know, you've probably been approached by some of your competitors that you're taking market share from that are publicly traded have liquid stock, uh, have been able to raise massive amount of capital. Um, so where do you kind of, you know, look to Canadian companies doing better that are publicly traded versus U.S. companies that are publicly traded doing better? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a two-part question. I think, like, who's going to become that major player uh, that really kind of commands a stable market share, like, globally? I think that's entirely TBD, right? Like, I think there is, you know, I don't I don't know that I could peg anybody as that right now because there's so much change, right? Two years ago, Motif didn't even exist. And now, you know, we're, we're on the top charts in Canada, for example, as a private business that didn't raise billions of dollars, right? So you, you don't know who that person's going to be or who that business is going to be. I think it's going to be the company that, uh, you know, I think these big MSOs and cannabis companies, um, you know, they're, they're making big moves to cut costs, but that's only going to take you so far. Then you got to, you know, acquire your way into strong brands and market share and growth. Right. And I think that right sizing is all happening right now. Um, and so it's, I think it's going to be those big balance sheets that pick the right, uh, uh, brands and technologies that have figured out how to make profitable product at scale that are going to, are going to come out on top. Uh, you know, in terms of our exit strategy, I mean, you know, right. It, it, for us, it's all about execution, build a good business. And and, and I think that brings you to a good uh, solution. But ultimately, for us, it's going to have to be very strategic, right? Like when you talk about international, like somebody somebody with a bigger balance sheet, with international reach, with, with a lot of brand experience um, to take what we've been able to, you know, hone and, and perfect in Canada and really blow it out on a national scale, I think is going to be critical. You know, whether that's cannabis, tobacco, CPG, alcohol, really just boils down to like that strategic alignment to take what Motif's figured out in cannabis and, and run a profitable business in a, like an extremely challenged market and take all of that brand equity and that manufacturing expertise and, and take it to that next level. And, and on that brand point, how do you guys measure, you know, where you are as a brand? So, you know, a, a good example in the U.S. that everyone kind of points to is, okay, you have cookies, they make a ton of money on March. Obviously, that's, you know, a very unique situation. But how do you guys measure, you know, where the brand is and, and how big it's getting? Yeah, I mean, for us in here, you know, I mean, market share is pretty key, uh, you know, and, and, and being able to accomplish market share without 
massively subsidizing your pricing is also very impressive, right? Like there are a lot of people that blip onto the radar in Canada and, and, and they play the price game and they finance their way into market share. What we really look for is that organic affinity. Like, you know, you obviously have to invest in your brand and you have to have the, the value versus the price has to be there. But like, like none of our products, uh, for example, in our box are anywhere near the floor, yet they command massive market share. And to us, that's a, you know, a, a true testament of like consumers love the product for what it is, not because it's the new, cheap, shiny object. Right. Um, that's a big thing for me. I think also, you know, obviously distribution and an ability to retain that distribution. You know, I think interaction on, on social is key for us. Um, you know, it's, it's tricky here, right? Because there are so many SKUs, there are so many products, but, you know, we even look at like, how many flavors are you carrying of our, of our product lines, right? Like, a, you know, a, a non-recognizable brand luck, is lucky to get a flavor or two in a store, like Box Hot nationally has six, seven, eight flavors per store, right? And it's, it's because these consumers are asking for it. So, so there's a number of ways we look at it. It's extremely dynamic, right? Like, you know, Box Hot's one of those handful of brands in Canada that's reached that, like, transcended that, like, and it's a brand, it's a staple brand. Uh, you know, our other brands, we're, we're still pushing them and getting them there through innovation. And, and they're a little bit earlier in their cycle, uh, but they will get there as well. What, what has worked really well for you guys um, to kind of accelerate that using a similar playbook, but on a faster timing? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think, I think on average, you know, what Motif looks to do is embrace that cannabis is fun. Right. Like cannabis is a social product. It's a fun product. You know, I think a lot of people went ultra wellness, which I think has its place. And, and you know, we participate in it. But you can't hang your hat on it. Uh, and then a lot of people went ultra legacy, which also has a place. But, you know, what Motif has figured out and, and who we are as a company is like, you know, mainstream cannabis, fun cannabis, like social, you know, I mean, it's what cannabis was for me. Right. Like I, I've been around it since high school. You know, for me, it's like smoking a joint, going for a bike ride. Like that's that's the vibe, right? And so I think we're we're trying to harness fun, but we're trying to harness it in 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 different ways for people. Where Boondocks is for kind of you know somebody that's more of the adventurer and outdoorsy, you know, Box Hot is for just loud, obnoxious, you know, party, and Rizzlers is kind of you know similar but for a different age category. On the innovation side, I think it's just being very thoughtful, right? Like you'll never see us just put oil into a cartridge. Like it all has to be very thoughtful. Like what's the flavor? What's the naming? How's it pairing with the rest of the product lines? How are we expanding into infused pre-rolls and edibles? And, and, you know, how are we telling the story at retail? You know, that's where we're really honing it. Boxot had all of these things come together um, that just really struck home with the market. And we're recreating that for different demographics as we launch different brands. That, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I guess with that, I'd be curious about, you know, any missteps. Um, we talked a lot about the success of the company, yeah, brands, but you know, any missteps uh, along the way in your journey? Oh, absolutely. Tons every day, right? Like, you, you know, you, you don't get to success without a lot of missteps. And we're not, I'm not sitting here suggesting that we've knocked it out of the park. We have, and I'm very proud of it, but it's come with a lot of, uh, a lot of learnings, right? I mean, you know, just this last year, um, we had a couple more um, hardware failures than I wanted to, because we tried to expand our network into other hardware vendors and they didn't offer us the, the, the consistency that we wanted. And that really, accelerated the way we test vapes so in the last 12 months i mean now the way we're testing vapes i mean you gotta talk to our chief innovation officer but i mean we're, we're, we have machines that are puffing these things testing vapor density testing you know clogging we have a 30 person uh focus group where even if it passes the machine testing we then beat it up in a real life application and that all came through you know hiccups in in a few of our product lines in debunk last year 
uh, proud to say we've relaunched them and now they're our like lowest failing rate vapes out of our whole portfolio. Um, you know, so I think really it's about, we've launched shitty products too. We've had to rationalize a ton of SKUs, ton of SKUs, right? And I think uh, we, we went off of intuition too much and now we're using data, right? So again, it's like how you respond and how you learn and implement the process to get to the next level. But th those missteps drive process, right? And, and on those missteps, is there a certain criteria where you say, hey, th this is too much. We're going to have to rationalize the SKU or this is you know, more than we're willing to spend to see if this thing's going to work. You know, how do you kind of figure out when to keep pressing and when to kind of hit the stop button? I think it's very collaborative and cross-departmental, right? It's, it's, you know, what is the street saying, right? Like, you know, first it starts with the consumer. Like, can, can we regain the consumer's trust? Can we regain the category manager's trust? Like, is that, is, is there something that we can regain there, whether it's a brand or a product? And, and we have those conversations, right? We, we, you know, I personally went, you know, when we had a couple of hiccups on a few of our product lines, I called the provincial buyers with my, you know, head of marketing. We had conversations with them. We laid out our plan. I asked, will you support this? Yes, we'll retain your listings. Okay, then we go to the major retailers and say, look, this is our plan. So I think it's about having these open conversations to say like, being transparent, here's how we're fixing it. Will you support us? If the answer is yes, then the incentive's there. If it's kind of like wishy-washy and maybe we just missed the mark on product format fit, um, and it's just eating up listings that, that could be more productive, right? I think it's also comparing can I take this, like, you know, I, I tried this half gram CBD vape and it's taking up a listing that can be like this two gram massive vape that can make me a lot of revenue. You have to do the math on that as well. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of teams looking at that and, and, and running inventory forecasts, you know, trade-off kind of analytics on it. Is there a way to measure loyalty from, from a consumer standpoint for you guys? It's really hard. It's really, really hard to measure loyalty. You know, it, it generally shows up as, you know, the way that we measure it is like, um, uh, we, we do a lot of programming, right? So like when you have a new product launch, you, 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 you partner with some retailers and you make that product very visible. And if after that product's visible, you start to see, you know, an increased rate of sale in those stores, it means that, you know, you got their attention, you paid a little extra to get that consumer in, but now they're buying again and again and again. And so generally what we do is we track rate of sale. Right. And we track it after programming. So like if something has a very high rate of sale and, and that rate of sale gets bumped through strategic programming and, and it stays there, you know, to us, this is like resonated. If we're investing a lot of dollars and that rate of sale just blips up when we invest the dollars and then disappears when we don't, it means the product's not resonating in some way. So we really track distribution rate of sale pre and post program to say like, oh, this thing has legs. Let's double down on it. And this thing doesn't is it flavor is it is it quality what is it and we renovate uh in some instances yeah i was gonna say maybe sort of following on, on social and then i was trying to look up uh box hot on instagram and it seems like there's a, a different instagram page than the let's dot box hot it seems like yeah, that man, we get shut down all the time dude we get shut down canada's so stringent that, and then like we have a target on our back i think our competitors report us like and we're, we're playing by the book but instagram and social so fickle like we can't rely on that staying live because people just report it, even if we follow the rules. So, and, and that's even it's, in it's Canada really where it's fairly legal, right? Because at least in the U.S., you you could kind of complain about it because maybe you're seeing in a state where it's not legal for adult use. I thought actually it was a bit more lax in, in Canada, but it sounds like Instagram not a, yeah, still tough. No, and it's and, and I think it's 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 partially Instagram, but I think it's partially when you're a top ten LP like. 
people are chasing you down and they're reporting you and they're going out of their way to kind of get in the way. And then, I mean, that's just part of the, you know, part of the game, right? So you got to yeah. win on the street, right? And that's, that's where we try to win is we went on the street with our sales folks. We, with, with those person in-person interactions, like that's, that's the game you got to play up here. Yeah. Cause typically, you know, I'll, I'll go to brand's page and see how many followers they have and kind of look at the engagement, uh, hard to do that in cannabis to kind of try and compare brands awesome. and see how they stack up. If, if it's deactivated here and there. Man, it's it's all about distribution. It's all about uh, rate of sale. In particular, we were really keen on looking at rate of sale in independent accounts, right? So, like, you know, these these accounts that we may may not be able to get to or or, or support in the, in the big way. Like, how, how what affinity do they have to the brand? Because if they're carrying it in, it's because the consumers are asking for it. So we have a lot of different metrics to kind of identify this brand or this product line or this flavor is a banger, and this one needs work. Um, you know, and oftentimes, like we'll launch eight flavors, one or two will lag. You got to get to the root cause of it. Is it name? Is it taste? And and then renovate and fix it and rationalize and get something better out. Yeah, and, and on that, you know, of all the retailers that you're in, I assume you guys have pretty good data on sort of you know which ones are contributing to X percent of sales and, and which one you know maybe on the lower percentile of of you know yeah. uh, sales, and then maybe you spend less time or do you spend more time on those? So on your like bottom twenty percent. For dispensaries, do you spend more time or less time? This goes back to like uh, the way that we leverage data, and and absolutely we have to prioritize, right? So I mean, you know, the way that our TM's priorities are set are based on a set of tiers, and those tiers are set based on like revenue uh, per store in our category, right? So you know, tier ones get visited multiple times a month, tier twos once a month, tier threes a little bit less frequently, um, or they're supported through telesales. So like, you have to ladder that up, and you have to, you know, you have to give the right amount of resources based on you know the revenue opportunity right and but you need data to illuminate that and, and we're getting better and better at doing that yeah that's where it's always tricky the retailer certainly has that point of interaction with the customers really have most of that data it seems like you have some data sharing agreement with these retailers um which seems helpful but i'm sure that's not a complete picture as complete as you'd like seems like for a company that loves to do r d and you know a b test things it's not as complete as you like, but, you know, there, there are, you know, bigger retailers consolidate their data, which is useful. Uh, but then there is also these companies that are that are like leveraging scrubbing technology because most retailers have a website and most of their websites are relatively up to date on inventory. And so, like, we, we do have some data sources that are scrubbing uh, kind of like the web to understand, you know, which of our products are in or not. And so and also scrubbing just for rate of sale. So. Look, we've got good data. It's not perfect, but you got to like you leverage your imperfect data to, to drive strategy. And then you, and then you validate. Right. Because we have people on the street. Right. And so we always validate if something isn't really matching up with what we see on the data. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about through this conversation, the advantage of being in Canada versus U.S. and, and sort of where your EBITDA numbers are, it's probably 280E. Right. That seems to be one of the biggest advantages that Canadian companies like yourself sort of have not not to deal with this 280 issue. Um, so help us understand, you know, where most of the costs may be associated with the company. And as you guys try to get more profitable, you know, where is that going to come from? Oh, it's a great I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think a good business needs to kind of find it everywhere. Right. But like, you know, I think if you if you look at our 2024 plans and where we where we have stretch targets, um, you know, we have to leverage our scale, right? So we now have scale to implement automation. Um, so we've got a very strong ops team that's like implementing automation to drive that production cost down. Um, you know, when it comes to sales and marketing, I mean, we spend a lot of money to support our brands and, and 
like truly, I know that we're not spending it as efficiently as we can. And so right now we're building out, we, we have business intelligence. We're, we're just about to hire a CFO and, and really consolidate business intelligence and, and sales finance type uh, work under that CFO, because it's like, not all do dollars spent are equal, like in terms of per province, per promotion. And so really where we're gonna drive our profitability is two things, is, is ensure everything we launch is supported with as much testing to ensure the quality, the flavor is there, right? The biggest thing that screws your profitability up is a terrible product, right? You have to pay every time you sell a product, you have to buy that consumer that kills it. And so we've taken that up a, a complete knot. We're, nothing's getting shipped unless 30 people have said it's fantastic and it's gone through r r rigorous testing. And then it's using the, the data that I've kind of keep talking about to say like, should I be spending X amount of dollars on, on retailer promos in Alberta versus Ontario versus BC? You know, what's the, what's the benefit of sampling versus like swag engagement, like really driving that dollar uh, to the highest ROI, you know, is where it's going to take us to the next level. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you guys have a handle on that today, but just need to optimize this ROI. So where, where can I go and spend a million bucks and, and know exactly, you know, how that's going to impact revenue, how that's going to impact EBITDA. It seems like. Absolutely. Absolutely. CFO, just tightening that up. CFO and a, and a couple of analytics. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, what our forecasts have, which is, you know, low double digit EBITDA this coming year. I mean, I think just leveraging, you know, leveraging our new chief manufacturing officer who's taken over like running the factory and leveraging uh, the CFO and their org on the, on the optimizing of uh, more of that consumer facing spend. Like there's another three, four or five points that we can find um, just through getting a lot more intelligent. Right. And that's what it takes. You have to like look at everything. <laughs> like you have to look at everything and, and, and question everything. Um, that's what we do. So, you know, in summary through this conversation, I would think, Motif, you know, given where you guys are, number one market share for a private Canadian company, you guys have, you know, north of 100 million, and, and I think that's Canadian, but probably US as well this year in, in, in revenue, uh, call it double digit EBITDA margins, um, optimizing a ton of things, gaining market share. What what other challenges are you focused on for the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just fighting off the threats that that threaten those those numbers and forecasts. You know, uh, we, we're still very challenged on um, there. There are a lot of larger LPs with with balance sheets uh, where they're willing to kind of play a price game, right? And that creates a lot of uh, uh, you know when you launch a product. I, I'm one of the tightest extractors in the country, and if I were to put that price into my model, like it's not delivering a gross margin that yields profitability. Like there, there's no way around it, right? And so you know, trying, we have to be more intelligent because I'm not willing to drop, you know, my pricing by uh, a certain amount. And so we have to play a more intelligent game. That is a big, big challenge. Um, and, and, but that's where Motif has succeeded so far, right? It's not new. It's just that, that we're still fighting that challenge. Um, you know, I think another key thing is, you know, infused pre-rolls are a very complex product line, right? You know, we're vape experts, we're, we're very good at infused pre-rolls, but like a heavy focus of ours is to have more control over how we manufacture those. They're super dynamic, right? Like you gotta inject them with oil, you gotta put terpenes in there, you gotta coat keef on it. It's like a multi-step process compared to a vape. And so really honing that and making sure every product is fantastic is gonna be critical in us uh, getting to where we need to go. And, you know, we have way more vendors working for us now. We're insourcing portions of that and we're going to start ro rolling our own joints, you know, keep coding our own joints and, and not solely relying on partners is critical. So, um, look, there's, there's, you know, there's challenges everywhere, right? And what I tell you today might change next month, but it's just responding quickly and, and knowing when they're coming for you.
what's interesting to me about that is I thought most of these Canadian LPs may not be placing playing that pricing game, just given, you know, everyone's trying to optimize costs, right? You see the headlines with canopy growth having to raise $35 million here and $25 million there. You see Tilray folks more on, on beverage and more on beer. Um, I assume that the deep pockets you may be referencing might be an organogram. So I, I actually thought the Canadian LPs were a bit distracted or maybe, you know, don't have the margins to play that pricing game. So it's interesting that, that you mentioned that. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because um, the good news is, is that two years ago, there was like 15, 20 companies willing to do that. Right. And now there is, you know, three or four. You know, and, and so that's surmountable, right? Um, because these retailers, they can accomplish their goals with three or four LPs, right? So uh, if you have a good, smart product, that's that's great. Like you're not getting completely shut out of the conversation. So like, uh, but like in the last three, four months, I mean, you know, these folks uh, that have reasonable flower market share have made some very aggressive moves, unprofitable moves on the on the 2.0 side. And look, we're responding. We're not concerned about it, but we have to be aware of it and, and and we have our plans, right? But it's not over yet, man. It's not over yet. And I think, you know, I think there's still, you know, there's still some reckoning uh, this year. Like some have cleaned up shop, but some are still making some very interesting moves that I, I can't really wrap my head around. Well, one that I hope you can give us some insights to is, so, you know, mentioned Organogram, obviously big news with um, taking money from British American Tobacco. Um, you know, I, I look at their brands and, and just, you know, without knowing much about their brands versus your brands, yours sort of pop a lot more. Even I think their top brand is Shred. I think, you know, any of your brands pop a bit more. So help us understand that deal. And, you know, did you guys get a similar deal or, or why, you know, them and not you or why them versus anyone else that's operating in, in Canada with brands? The deal, meaning the additional funding? Yeah, like like why did you know British American Tobacco choose Organogram versus anyone else in the market? You know, as, as someone who's in that market day to day, just you know, I wa wanted to see if you have any insights. Uh, it's a great question. I mean, look, I mean, you know, they've been aligned for a long time, right? B BAT and Organogram, and they have a very you know aligned strategy. You know, they this isn't the first time they've invested. Um, you know, so there's an element of doubling down on on something that you're already participating in. Uh, you know, a long-standing relationship. I mean, the, the nature of that investment is also very interesting. It seems to be, you know, targeted towards funding, you know, maybe acquisitions or R&D and, um, and, and, and almost using Organogram as a vehicle to, to kind of uh, advance BAT's, you know, um, participation in the industry. Uh, why not Motif? I think there's a couple elements to that. I mean, look, we've been very inwardly focused. We have our shareholder group that, that's that's taking care of us and we're trying to achieve our numbers, right? And I think, you know, Motif hasn't really gotten very outwardly focused yet um, in terms of finding strategics. Uh, and so that's, the, you know, it's a little bit by design. Um, but it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, you know, there's still a long way to go on profitability. Uh, you know, revenues are declining with some of these bigger LPs. Uh, profitability kind of isn't in the horizon. And, and the brands are losing affinity. So I think we, I think we can do, do a lot this year. I'm very confident. I mean, our brands are a lot better, but I think what's key is our team is very dedicated, man. I mean, like I'm the founder, right? A lot of the people that are running this place are from my network. Like this is not a company where there's like, I'm the fifth CEO and everybody's w waiting for their layoff. Like we've never laid anybody off. Like I'm in the trenches, my C-suite's in the trenches. We give a shit, everybody gives a shit. A lot of the key leadership is an owner. Uh, in the business and like we're super tight right and that's our advantage it's a private business of a bunch of people that care 
I care about my people. They care about me. Uh, I mean, we're, we go beyond motif, a lot of them. And, um, you know, we're able to move fast. Whereas a lot of these companies, I mean, you know, you're on CEO number four or five, like you're just another cog in the wheel and it's hard to kind of get bought into that vision, I think. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of assume that was sort of the answer as well, just doubling down on things, right? A lot of these strategics have come into can cannabis, especially with uh, Canadian LPs and, and kind of said, hey, this is our bet. Uh, and when the bet don't make sense to outsiders, it seems like they just keep plowing more money into it, right? Um, I think, I mean, I think one thing, you know, you're, you're spot on. And I think, you know, uh, a lot of people are going to start waking up and looking at real results. Speculation's dead. It's all about execution, right? And I, you know, I think, I, you know, I hope and I believe that, that the people that are looking to jump into the space are going to get a lot smarter about it and pick the companies that have proven that they can execute versus, you know, proven that they could tell a, you know, good hypothetical story, right? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that those tides are turning uh, this year and into next for sure. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's great that you point out that you are the original, uh, you know, founder and, and CEO, and you remain to this day because CEO transition, whether that's Canada or US, in most of these bigger companies, uh, happen way too often. So that's that's a great differentiator that usually you don't see outside of cannabis. Yeah, man, this isn't my job. This is like my life, right? And 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 you know, for a lot of people. Uh, that work for me, I mean, it's more than just a job for them as well, right? And that, and that goes a long way. I don't think people talk about that, but having your people care about your business, care about the vision, be bought into the vision, I mean, that is what's going to make the difference, um, you know, and, and we protect that at all costs. Right. And just from a business standpoint, employee turnover is very costly, um, you know, yeah. what you have to pay recruiters and, and benefits and termination fees. So it, it's a benefit to the business as well on that front. Win-win all, all across for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining. Really helpful to understand more about the company and uh, look forward to what you guys do this year and beyond. Hey, really appreciate it. Appreciate the thoughtful questions and, and, I, and I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to meeting up outside of uh, podcast land soon again. Yeah, we'll have to get together at the next uh, trade show you're at. Absolutely, man.